This episode is brought to you in part by June's Journey. Picture it, the glamour of the roaring 20s wrapped in a mystery that only you can solve. Dive into June Parker's captivating quest to uncover scandalous family secrets. With your keen eye for detail, find hidden clues and solve mind-boggling puzzles. It's all about observation, intrigue, and drama. But beware, each clue leads deeper into a thrilling storyline filled with danger and romance. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Your adventure awaits. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. When thou comest to the high mountains, if thou seest any of the dark watching men, Go not near to them, nor try to speak to them. And forget not thy prayers. That was no bizarre Bible passage. It's an excerpt from American literary giant John Steinbeck. You know, author of Grapes of Wrath, of Mice and Men, high school English class reading. And in that excerpt, he's describing one of the eeriest pieces of American folklore I've ever had the misfortune to come across. The Dark Watchers. These entities are elusive. In fact, no one really knows what they are. But I can tell you this. They inhabit the wilderness near California's St. Lucia Mountains. And they only come out at dawn and dusk. That liminal space at the bleeding edge of day and night. But if you do catch a glimpse, as Steinbeck warns, keep your distance. And for the love of God, do not speak to them. But we'll get to why that is later. I first heard about Dark Watchers on a trip to Big Sur. I'd come there to finish a graphic novel, or as my grandfather used to call them, funny books, that'd been living in my head for far too long. You see, my kids were young then, and life was hectic. Everything felt like a distraction that took me away from writing. So I rented out a cabin. No cell reception, no Wi-Fi. There was barely electricity. By day two, I was still struggling to start when a tear in the wallpaper caught my eye. I swore there was some kind of handwriting behind it, so I peeled it back to find a sentence that made my blood run cold. Watch the dark, and they will watch back. Sure, any strange phrase scrawled in a cabin in the woods is unsettling, but the thing I couldn't stop thinking about was one word. They... Why was this stranger personifying darkness? And why was there more than one? With my own writing now thoroughly derailed, I decided to find out. And well, I don't think I need to tell you that I got more than what I bargained for. You're listening to Run Fool. I'm Rodney Barnes, and this is episode 15, The Dark Watchers. 
The first person I asked about the ominous phrase on the wall was the cabin's caretaker, Steve. We met up at a dive bar in town, the only place that let him bring his dog. Steve was a friendly old dude, a hippie type with a face as weather-beaten as the cabins he tended. But when I brought up the wallpaper, his good vibes curdled to dread. He promised to tell me all about it, but first, he insisted, we needed a drink. That's when I knew I was about to hear something good. He said the story was also the story about how he got his dog, Jules. He gave the mutt lying at his feet a scratch. But like many happy endings, this one started with a whole lot of misery. The year before, the person who had rented my cabin was a woman by the name of Radine Curtis. She was a writer too, a former prize-winning novelist. I say former because when I looked her up, Ray hadn't written anything new in over a decade. Like me... That's exactly why she'd come to Big Sur, for a little solitude, and if she was lucky, some inspiration. But as she made her way down the winding Pacific Coast Highway, inspiration was the furthest thing from her mind. See, Ray was caught up in some rough emotions, bitterness, apathy, and behind it all, heartbreak. Just a few months before she'd gone through a nasty breakup, her partner of 15 years had abandoned her. Things had been bad for a long time. Radine had withdrawn, deep in something like depression. And Laura, well, she up and left Ray for one of her PhD students. It was such a cliche. Ray was almost more embarrassed than she was heartbroken. After the breakup, Ray stopped showing up to work. Once the university where she taught found out, she was dismissed. She'd fallen off the ivory tower and hit rock bottom. Things were real dark for a while but eventually Ray decided to see it all as a gift. A gift of freedom, of being untethered to no one and nothing. So she got herself to Big Sur. The place had a bit of a legacy as a literary mecca. A lot of legendary artists spent time there, mostly young white dude writers of their time. Guys like Steinbeck, but also Henry Miller, Hunter S. Thompson, and Jack Kerouac. And Ray was determined to add her own name to that list. She was finally going to start her newest novel, the novel, the one she knew she'd had in her all this time. As Ray White knuckled her way along the mountainside, she gasped. The hills opened up and suddenly there it was, massive wave-beaten cliffs plunging into a cerulean ocean. She rolled down her window and listened to the surf crashing against the bluff. Then in the fading twilight, she saw something she couldn't explain. Peeking over the cliffs was a figure the dark silhouette of a person, but bigger. Considering the distance, they must have been massive. Ray couldn't get over how strange it was. It was almost mesmerizing. She leaned over a steering wheel to get a better look when a horn blared behind her. Ray snapped too, just as she saw her front left tire hover off the cliffside. Her stomach dropped and she jerked the car back onto the road. When she pulled over, she couldn't stop shaking. Had it not been for that other driver, she would have been dead, dashed on the rocks in a heap of twisted metal. And for what? Ray peered out her windshield, but the weird figure was gone. She shook her head. This place was as treacherous as it was majestic. She needed to remember that. As she drove, Ray kept thinking about the thing on the cliffs. It got her mind abuzz in a way she hadn't felt in a long time. An idea was forming in her head. But before she could write it down, she needed to get situated. 
Ray pulled up to the cabin, her humble home for the next few weeks, and got out to survey the place. It sat in the shadow of the St. Lucia Mountains, surrounded by so many redwoods. It looked like it had been swallowed by nature. She felt hidden there, like the only soul for miles. It was perfect. Her moment of peace was ruined by a man with a lantern. He had a wild beard and, in Ray's opinion, too many bracelets. You already know who. That's right, our friend Steve. He greeted her with a hearty hello and showed her to her lodgings. It wasn't much, but it had charm. A wood stove, floral curtains, and in a nook by the window was an old desk. Ray thanked him and not so subtly led him to the door. But Steve lingered. He said he knew she was going to be there for a while. And well, he'd be doing a disservice if he didn't warn her that it could get lonely. So if she needed anything, even just a chat, she should give him a holler. Ray wasn't charmed by Steve like I was. She'd come to Big Sur to be alone, not to make small talk with an old hippie. But before she could push him out, she realized there was something he could help her with. So she told him about the strange silhouette she'd seen on the bluff. Steve raised an eyebrow. He said she was describing an old piece of Big Sur lore, something the locals, the real old-timers, used to talk about. Shadow-like wraiths that haunted the land. They were called the Dark Watchers. Ray felt that buzz in her head again, the same one she felt after she saw the shadows. She wanted to know everything about them. What were they? Steve didn't have a good answer. He'd only seen them once himself, but he did know that if you saw them, the old-timer said the same thing. Look away and keep moving. Ray leaned in, and if you don't, Steve paused, then looked her dead in the eye. Then they start watching you. And believe me, you don't want that. What Steve had told her sounded ominous, sure. But Ray didn't put much stock into folklore. All she knew was that talking about the Dark Watchers put that buzz back in her head. And she needed to get it onto paper while she could. So she sat down at her desk, and for the first time in years, Ray began to write. The words came to her in one stream, something that never happened, even when she was at her best felt good, exhilarating, like some kind of rapture. Then, after an hour or two, it left her. So Ray cut her losses and got some sleep. Suddenly, Ray was standing in a grove of redwoods. It was peaceful there, but eerie, and its strange beauty only stoked her panic. She was lost. That's when a terrifying thought occurred to her. Could you be lost if no one was looking for you? It began to downpour and Ray ducked into a hollow of a mammoth tree. She watched as the woods became dense around her. Everything was growing and dying and growing again. But it wasn't until she looked down that she saw the lichen spreading across her skin. And as she opened her mouth, her screams were choked with moss. Ray woke up gasping for air. But once she calmed down, she remembered something. Her writing. She rushed to the desk and flipped through her journal. She'd written six pages, and they were good. Not groundbreaking, but they had something. An energy. She tried picking up where she left off, but she couldn't tap back into it. It was too far out of reach. And now that it was gone, she felt depleted. Like a husk. The longer Ray stared at the blank page, the more she felt like she would drown in it. 
so she dropped her pen and marched out the door. And when she was greeted by the sight of wild, gorgeous wilderness, she laughed. She was such an idiot. Did she really believe she would traipse over to Big Sur and what? The ghosts of beat poets past would help her write a novel? Jesus, why hadn't it occurred to her until now how dumb that was? No, she dried up years ago. She didn't have another book in her. She never would. Ray sat down on a stump and closed her eyes. She had to snap out of it. Besides, she didn't do self-pity. She was going to get up, go inside, and write the damn book. Ray took a breath and opened her eyes when her mouth dropped. Staring at her with wild intensity was a dog. Then, as if sensing her trepidation, the pup sat down. It was some kind of mutt, the size and shape of a shepherd but the wrong color, and no collar. The dog looked up at her with expectant eyes, tail wagging. Ray sighed. Like I said, Ray didn't do self-pity, and that meant she didn't pity anyone else either, including that poor mutt. But she wasn't cruel, and as far as she knew, she was the only person for miles that would feed the thing. So she begrudgingly got to her feet and fetched the pup a can of tuna. As Ray watched the child down, she decided she'd go on a hike. She'd shake off the blank page dread and come back fresh. And hopefully by then the dog would be gone. She started towards the woods when it trotted after her. Ray told it to get lost. But when she tried chewing it away, the canine just cocked its head and kept on following. Ray decided they could coexist, but that was that which meant she wouldn't name the dog. So it, or she, as Ray eventually realized, would simply be called Dog. No point in getting attached, she told herself. She was there for solitude, not companionship, regardless of the species. All afternoon, Dog and Ray made their way up the trail towards the bluffs. By the time she saw the ocean through the trees, it was already twilight. As the forest grew darker, Ray felt her anxiety build. The trees loomed larger around her, almost like they were pressing in. She put a hand on Dog, steadying herself, when the hair stood up on the back of Ray's neck. She was being watched. Dog must have felt it too, because she perked her ears and turned to stare intently at the tree line. Ray followed her gaze and froze. Up ahead, silhouetted by the dying sun, were people, about five of them. Ray was about to ask for directions when the words died on her tongue. The people stood still, too still, and they were unnaturally tall, ten, maybe twelve feet, almost exactly like the figure she'd seen on the cliffs, the Dark Watchers. Steve's warning flashed through her mind, but Ray couldn't look away. She kept staring, suspended somewhere between rapture and terror, when that familiar buzz in her head returned. Then she took a step forward. Behind her, Dog growled, but Ray kept her gaze fixed on the Watchers. She didn't want to lose sight of them like last time. She needed them. She took another step and held out her hand. Don't be scared, she crooned. We won't hurt you. The shadow stirred. Then all five began to turn. There was doubt that they were facing her now. She could feel it. The sounds of the forest dropped out, falling to a low thrum. Ray could barely hear Dog growling anymore. All she felt was a delectable cold feeling. It rushed around her like she was caught in a current. The watchers moved closer, their bodies stretching larger, cloaks undulating like liquid ink. 
Ray raised both arms, eyes, and mouth wide. And she was jerked backward. Ray looked up. She saw a dog's worried face staring down at her. The mud had pulled her to the ground. She sat up, scanning the trees, but the watchers were gone. Something, though, something felt different. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Whether you're searching for a home to buy or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. Ray had never had a muse, but she figured this must have been what it felt like, because after her encounter with the Watchers, she felt electric. She wrote the entire night, filling page after page. Her mind moved so quickly, her hands could barely keep up. By the time the sun peeked through the blinds, the pages of her journal were black with ink. Exhausted but happy, Ray stumbled to bed. This was joy, she told herself. She realized she'd never known it until now. Ray dreamed vividly that night. She was standing in the same grove of redwoods from her nightmare, but it was daytime. Dappled sunlight filtered to the forest floor. Ray closed her eyes and breathed deep. And when she opened them, she saw a familiar figure half hidden behind a tree. Her chest heaved. Laura? Laura turned quickly till all Ray could see was her dark hair. When she spoke, her voice was sweeter than Ray remembered. Come, she sang, then slipped through the trees. Ray immediately followed. She tracked Laura through the woods, climbing higher. All the while, Laura called to her to run faster. Ray cried tears of relief. Then she was laughing, chasing the love of her life in some strange game. When she reached the bluff, Ray stopped. Laura stood at the edge, her back to Ray. She gazed out at the water, her body silhouetted by the sun. Ray thought she'd never look more beautiful. Ray approached slowly, calling her name. But Laura didn't move until Ray gently placed her hand on her shoulder. Laura turned her head, and in that excruciating moment, Ray realized she wasn't looking at her Laura, but into a bottomless hollow where a face should have been. She screamed. Ray woke up, but she wasn't in bed. It was night, yes, but it was cold, windy. Then she looked down and was floored with terror. She was standing, actually standing on the precipice of that cliff. Her bare foot hung half off the edge. 
pebbles cascading down the cliffside into the crashing ocean. Ray jolted backwards and fell to the ground, trembling. At the cabin, as she tended to her dirty, cut-up feet, Ray was faced with the reality of what happened. Her dream wasn't a dream. And unless the whole thing was all part of some greater Kafkaesque nightmare, she needed to come to grips with a few facts. She'd sleptwalked to that cliff and almost stepped off it to her death. But also, she was lured there. She'd followed Laura, or rather, the Laura-shaped abyss. A chill of recognition rushed through her. The dream, that thing, was the Dark Watchers. She understood Steve's warning now. She'd looked too long, gotten too close, and now that they'd seen Ray, they'd singled her out. They were watching her. That's when Ray remembered. In her dream that wasn't a dream, she touched the Laura-shaped abyss. She touched the Watchers. After that night, Ray resolved not to go outside. The cabin was the only defense she had against the shadows, so she locked the door and drew the curtains, only stepping out once a day to feed Dog. But even inside, Ray couldn't deny the Watcher's influence. She passed hours in maniacal bouts of writing. After two days, she'd filled her journal. In four, she'd moved on to loose bits of paper. She wrote like a woman possessed, slipping between herself into some other altered state, a prophet for some higher power. But the longer she spent in these states, the less she felt like herself. And soon, she realized she wasn't acting of her own volition. She started finding herself in the cabin, inexplicably covered in mud and leaves. Then one evening, she woke up to Dog licking her face and realized she was outside, curled on the forest floor. This happened more and more, her nights bleeding into her days. She forgot how long she'd been there. A week? A month? Soon it didn't matter. Nothing did. She barely ate and was forgetting to feed Dog, too. And then, the words she was writing weren't words anymore. The creek outside was now rushing through her head. She could hear every sound in the forest, everything except Dog's pathetic whimpers as she scratched at the cabin door. A part of Ray knew what was happening. That pragmatic, jaded voice, the one that made Ray Ray, wasn't gone entirely. So one evening, when a cold breeze moved through the cabin and creaked open the door, she knew continuing to lock herself inside was futile. They were already here. Ray got to her feet and walked out the cabin door. She was delirious, almost hollow, but calm. You see, her book was almost done, but she wasn't sure she wanted to finish. Because once it was over, what would she do? Where would she go? She had no home. She never really did. Until now. She realized she'd come to Big Sur for a reason. That she'd always been heading here. Her life had just been one winding trail culminating to this moment. She just hadn't known it until now. Which meant there was no use fighting what was about to happen. Once outside, Doug was immediately on her. She jumped up, licking Ray's hands and face. Ray scratched her ears and looked that mutt in the eyes for maybe the first time. She saw love there, and in a different life at a different time, Ray thought that maybe she could have loved her right back. But this was now, and she had no choice. 
Ray led Dog into the cabin and shut the door. Confused and trapped, Dog barked after her. But Ray turned away and walked into the wilderness. She didn't have to go far. This time, they had come to her. Ray laughed, of course. They'd come to watch. She felt their gaze before she saw them. Ray looked around the twilight woods, her arms open to her invisible audience. Here I am, she yelled to the dim light. It's time. Now there they were, more of them, perhaps a dozen, staggered in the depths of the trees. They surrounded her as somber as soldiers, as if they'd been expecting her in this spot, waiting. Seeing them all brought tears to Ray's eyes. She wasn't afraid. What was there to be afraid of? The worst had already happened. No, she was happy. One of the watchers took a slow step. It eased its way forward, closer, then stopped. Its arm outreached toward Ray, a beckoning, a welcome. Now that piece of Ray that was still pragmatic, still Ray, that piece stopped talking. What took over was something else. There was no thought, no decision. It was an indescribable urge, primal, like it was inscribed in her DNA, like salmon swimming upstream to spawn. She was going home, the home she had never been to, but she always knew she came from, a dark cradle. She'd been looking for it all her life and now was calling to her, welcoming her in the form of this monster's shadowy embrace. So she walked toward the dark. She was so close. When what was left of Ray came in screaming from some deep buried place. In that moment, the last moment, it told her she was heading towards something wrong, something vile and poisonous. But it came too late. Ray touched the watcher, and as if she had just stepped into the pull of some great dark undertow, she sank. Ray woke up on the forest floor again. But this time, it wasn't the one she'd come from. It was darker, emptier, a blank place where the sound felt muffled and dull, like she was leagues beneath some dry ocean. She was not home. Ray stood up trembling and looked around when she heard voices, other people. Hello, she called out desperately, but there was no reply, just cries echoing somewhere in the abyss. She followed the voices into the darkness, and as she got closer, they got louder, crisper. There were wails of agony, anguish, loneliness. Ray recognized them. They were her voice. She was alone, trapped here with the echoes of her own misery. And soon another joined the chorus, a scream. Ray was screaming. When Ray never came to check out, Steve got worried. He went to the cabin, bracing himself for what he'd find. But instead of opening the door to some rotting corpse, a dog shot out and ran straight into the woods. Steve followed it till it led him right to Ray. She was curled up in the hollow of a rotting tree, emaciated and delirious, but alive. Steve tried to wake her out of whatever nightmare she was trapped in, but he couldn't. She didn't know help was there, shaking her shoulders. Eventually, he flagged down help and the paramedics came and took her. 
He'd only learned later that they brought Ray to an asylum. She hasn't woken up since. Poor thing, Steve muttered. He knew in his gut it had something to do with the watchers. And when he went back to Ray's cabin, that fear was confirmed. There was writing everywhere, and he meant everywhere. Once Ray filled every scrap of paper, she moved onto the mirror, the walls. And apparently, that book she was writing, it wasn't a book at all. It was just one phrase covering the whole place. The same one I'd found under the wallpaper. Watch the dark, and they will watch back. Anyway, he said, that's how he found his dog, Jules. He gave her a name and a home, and she'd clung to him like a shadow ever since. I was dreading going back to my cabin after that, but I didn't want to get lost in the dark. So I thanked Steve for the drink and stepped out into the trees. As I walked, I started missing my family something fierce. That miserable tale made me realize that closing yourself off just left you alone with your own suffering. And if there's no one there to pull you out, well, that can swallow you whole. I decided then I'd cut my losses and go back to L.A. the next morning. But as I turned the bend, I saw something looming in the corner of my eye. Dark silhouettes. People shaped, but unnaturally tall. I had the urge to turn around. To stare. But I fought the feeling and continued on. Because no kind of inspiration was worth being trapped in my own damn head. Run Fool is a production of Ballin Studios, Campside Media, and Atwell Media. It is hosted and executive produced by me, Rodney Barnes. This episode was written by Alex Garland and produced by Abakar Adan and Lee Mengistu. It was also sound designed and mixed by Kevin Seaman. Creature vocalization by Terry Cashburn and Colette Anderson. And artwork by Jessica Clogston Kiner. Production support by Jeremy Bond and Cole Lacasio. Special thanks to our operations team, Doug Slaywin, Ashley Warren, Sabina Mara, and Destiny Dingle. Executive producers at Ballin Studios are Mr. Ballin, Nick Witters, and Zach Levitt. Executive producers at Atwill Media are Will Malnati and Rosie Guerin. Executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scher, Josh Dean, Vanessa Gregoriadis, and Adam Hoff. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.